0: hello welcome back to another episode so i mentioned we're going to look at specific technologies this episode so let's turn our attention back to the telegraph the first example of this global interconnected web and see what McLuhan thinks about it before continuing on with our quick history of the technology of the electronic age McLuhan says that the telegraph changed the newspaper from literary essays from that writer's point of view to a mosaic of quote erratic noises called headlines, journalies, and telegraphies, unquote. The latter makes one participate more. They have to make their own connections between the mosaic of information and images, creating the meaning and overall impression themselves. This high participation wasn't just for the reader, but for the journalists and the creators of newspapers, McLuhan says that, in the beginning of the newspaper, they waited for the news to arrive. News was something outside of the newspaper; it was separate from the newspaper. Newspapers were used to correct rumors. But this evolved when people behind newspapers thought that they should not just receive and report news, but gather and make news. What was in the paper was news. What wasn't in the paper wasn't news. <laughs> they sent journalists off into the field. Make me some news. This brings me to William Howard Russell, one of the first modern war reporters. He reported from the Crimean War in the mid-1850s, the Indian First War of Independence in 1857, the American Civil War in the early 1860s, the Austro-Prussian War of 1866, and the Franco-Prussian War of 1870. I don't know how he didn't die earlier um what made his reporting so influential is that in the crimean war he used the telegraph to give reports back home as the war progressed so for the first time the public experienced foreign war not as general statements of its progress not as dramatized mythologized purified summaries not as personal accounts from soldiers when they were back home separated from the war by a large amount of time but much more close real time with more of the realities of war included. It brought the war home in a new way, in a way which would be amplified later with the war photography of the Vietnam War, for example. And like with Vietnam, the public was shocked and angry with the horrors of war. Florence Nightingale was inspired by these realistic dispatches to become a nurse for the soldiers. McLuhan interprets this in his peculiar way saying that Nightingale's response to the first onslaught of electronic technology made sense, that in an age when the mind was beginning to be extended externally, one would focus on the body. The main takeaway of the telegraph, though, is that this was a major step in the acceleration of the speed that information could travel. Before, the speed of information was the speed of the messenger. So. Methods of human transport, wheels and horses, as well as roads, were intimately connected to information exchange and the written word. The telegraph was the first step in separating information from a human body, which is kind of like creating a nervous system or a consciousness outside of bodies, right? Eisenstein talks about how print didn't change the speed of information, but its influence was because it changed the flows of information, how information was stored and gathered, that sort of thing. So with electronic technology, we see the results of increasing speed of information. So let's continue with the history of electronic technology. Throughout the 1800s, different types of generators were invented. The most important type in 1866 by Werner von Siemens. It was important because it didn't require magnetic power from the outside to work. In 1802, going back a bit, Humphrey Davy invented the first incandescent light. And in 1806, he invented the first arc light. Incandescent light works by electrically heating a wire to such a degree that it glows, whereas arc light works by having two conductors close to each other but not touching, and in between there's a gas, and the current through the gas produces a bright plasma, in other words, light. Even though these two methods of electric lighting were invented in the first decade of the 1800s, only with the development of the proper type of generator were cities able to light the streets, and commercial lighting became popular in the 1870s. Thomas Edison is quoted as saying, quote, We will make electricity so cheap that only the rich will burn candles, unquote. McLuhan has some interesting thoughts about electric light. He re- it relates to his The Medium is the Message slogan. He says that, quote, the electric light is pure information. It is a medium without a message, unquote. It has no content. There's a story of a prominent member of the communications industry challenging McLuhan about his medium is the message slogan in a bathroom after a speech of his, saying something along the lines of, surely if you remove the content, the medium remains? Notice how he took message to be synonymous with content interesting. But this, and other similar confusions, led McLuhan to think about the content of media more. First, he asserted that the content of the electric light, of the screwdriver, of language, of the written text, is the user. This was another probe he was playing around with. The meaning of the process is created by the interplay between the user and the technology, and as the user becomes aware of how the technology acts on them, new technology is created." Or something like that. I'm not sure how I feel about that idea. But another formulation of content from McLuhan is that the content of a medium is another medium, usually a previous form. The content of spoken language is that swirling interplay of sense that McLuhan understands to be consciousness. The content of writing is the spoken language. The content of print is the writing. The content of the telegraph is print. Quote, except for light, all other media come in pairs with one acting as the content of the other, obscuring the operation of both, Unquote. Whatever the content is, we should understand that in the medium is the message. Message means the complete happening, not a package of information. It brings us back to Lance Strait's point that if McLuhan was using the word message in its normal way, the phrase would be pointless. In fact, later, his view of content and media changes again. He says, quote, each technology creates a new environment. The old environment becomes the content of the new environment. Well, we'll get back to this idea. So let's move on from electric light to the electric telephone. I say electric telephone because there were non-electric telephones, mechanical telephones, since the 1600s. Now, these telephones didn't have the same range as the electric telephone, since they were connected by string. The tin can telephone was the most popular mechanical telephone, where two tin cans were connected by a wire. I've seen that like children doing that like in movies and stuff. I don't know. I don't know how relatable that is. Most people know that Alexander Graham Bell invented the telephone. What they might not know is that this fact is often disputed, and there are like six other people who have been credited with his invention. Part of this controversy has been a Canada versus the US thing. In 2002, the US Congress passed a resolution recognizing Antonio Mucci's role in the invention of the telephone. A congressman issued a press release that made it seem like the resolution was saying that Mucci invented the telephone and Alexander Graham Bell did not. So the Canadian Parliament responded by passing a motion stating that Alexander Graham Bell was the inventor of the telephone. It was all purely symbolic and sounds pretty silly. (laughs) Alexander Graham Bell lived in Canada for a bit, so maybe that's why it was a Canada versus the US issue. But he also lived in the US, so I'm not really sure (laughs) why they were wasting their time doing that. There's also somebody named Alicia Gray, who invented a telephone at the same time as Graham Bell. There's there's a big debate over whether Graham Bell stole Gray's idea. In fact, they applied for a patent on the same day, which is pretty crazy. And this brings up something that is uh, going to be another diversion. So bear with me, but it's something that I can't stop thinking about. Like how how many times there are multiple inventors of a technology like right at the same time. Um, I'm going to read a passage from Kevin Kelly's book, What Technology Wants, where he, he goes over um, the, like, the insane amount of coincidences in the history of invention. Kelly says, quote, Park Benjamin, the author of The Age of Electricity, observed in 1901 that, quote, not an electrical invention of any importance has been made, but that the honor of its origin has been claimed by more than one person. Dig deep enough in the history of any type of discovery in any field, and you'll find more than one claimant for the first priority. In fact, you are likely to find many parents for each novelty. Sunspots were first discovered not by two, but by four separate observers, including Galileo, in the same year, 1611. We know of six different inventors of the thermometer and three of the hypodermic needle Edward Jenner was preceded by four other scientists, who all independently discovered the efficacy of vaccinations. Adrenaline was first isolated four times. Three different geniuses discovered or invented decimal fractions. The electric telegraph was reinvented by Joseph Henry, Samuel Morse, William Cook, Charles Wheatstone, and Carl Steinheil. The Frenchman Louis Daguerre is famous for inventing photography, but three others, Nisiphor Nieps, Hercules Florence, and William Henry Falk, Fox Talbot also independently came upon the same process. The invention of logarithms is usually credited to two mathematicians, John Napier and Henry Briggs, but actually a third one, Eust Berge, invented them three years earlier. Several inventors in both England and America simultaneously came up with the typewriter. The existence of the eighth planet, Neptune, was independently predicted by two scientists in the same year, 1846. The liquefaction of oxygen, the electrolysis of aluminum, and the stereochemistry of carbon, for just three examples of chemistry, were each independently discovered by more than one person. And in each case, the simultaneous discoveries occurred within a month or so. Columbia University sociologists, William Ogburn, and Dorothy Thomas, combed through scientists' biographies, correspondence, and notebooks to collect all the parallel discoveries and inventions they could find between 1420 and 1901. They write, the steamboat is claimed as the exclusive discovery of Fulton, Joffrey, Rumsey, Stevens, and Symington. At least six different men, Davidson, Jacobi, Lilly, Davenport, Page, and Hall claim to have made independently the application of electricity to the railroad. Given the railroad and electric motors, is not the electric railroad inevitable? Inevitable. There's that word again. Common instances of equivalent inventions independently discovered at the same moment suggest that the evolution of technology converges in the same manner as biological evolution. If so, then if we could rewind and replay the tape of history, the very same sequence of inventions should roll out in a very similar sequence every time we re-ran it. Technologies would be inevitable. The appearance of morphological archetypes would further suggest that this technological invention has a direction, a tilt, a tilt that is independent to a certain extent of its human inventors. Indeed, in all fields of technology, we commonly find independent, equivalent, and simultaneous invention. If this convergence indicated that discoveries were inevitable, the inventors would appear as conduits filled by an invention that just had to happen. We would expect the people making them to be interchangeable, if not almost random. That's exactly what psychologist Dean Simonton found. He took Ogburn and Thomas's catalog of simultaneous invention before 1900 and aggregated it with several other similar lists to map out the pattern of parallel discovery for 1546 cases of invention. Simonton plotted the number of discoveries made by two individuals against the number of discoveries made by three people, or four people, or five, or six. The number of six-person discoveries was, of course, lower. But the exact ratio between these multiples produced a pattern known in statistics as a Poisson distribution. This is the pattern you see in mutations on a DNA chromosome and in other rare chance events in a large pool of possible agents. The Poisson curve suggests that the system of who found what was essentially random, unquote. So sorry for that long passage, but it's something that, yeah, I've been thinking about a lot. So if you have anything else to read about that. Let me know. All this doesn't really matter for McLuhan and our purposes here. Let's just go with the common Alexander Graham Bell invented the telephone idea. It's kind of funny that he invented it, since, since much of his work before the invention involved teaching deaf children. On March 10th, 1876, Graham Bell spoke the words, Mr. Watson, come here, I need to see you through his telephone. This was the first time that spoken language, the first extension of our central nervous system, according to McLuhan, merged with electronic technology, the second extension of our central nervous system. The year after Graham Bell spoke those words to the telephone, in 1877, Thomas Edison invented the phonograph. I mean, (laughs) maybe six other people did too. It works kind of like a record player, with a needle going into the grooves the groove shaped as an analog to the sound waves of whatever was recorded, but instead of flat discs, it began with cylinders. From looking at pictures, these weren't electronic, they were hand-cranked. Eventually, discs took over, and in the 1930s, vinyl did too, providing the world with the record player we know today. The phonograph began as a mechanical device, but merged with electricity, with the invention of the tape recorder in 1932. But in its mechanical stages, it was still tied to electronic technology. Edison thought its main function would be to store telephone conversations, adding permanence to the spoken word. McLuhan notes that until the 1930s, recorded sound came from one point. He says that this is a continuation of the fixed point of view of the typographical age, like the sound version of the single-eye fixed perspective necessary for linear perspective. In the 1930s though, stereo sound was invented, giving the recorded sound multiple speakers to come out of, adding multi-dimensionality to the recorded sound, moving closer to the natural acoustic space of our ears. Stereo really took off in the 1970s though, I should add. In the late 1800s and early 1900s, After the invention and acceptance of Maxwell's theory and his famous Maxwell equations, electrical engineering really took off, as I mentioned last episode. Electronic household appliances began to be developed. In 1906, Reginald Fessenden transmitted speech via radio for the first time to a specific location. There's controversy about who made the first general broadcast, though. Some thinking Fessenden did it. Um, on Christmas Eve in 1906, but some thinking, thinking it was a guy named Lee DeForest in 1907. Again, all these, <laughs> the simultaneity of invention keeps coming up. Now, obviously the radio added an element of orality, continuing from the f- telephone and the phonograph. McLuhan makes an interesting observation that in the beginning, the radio was mainly an entertainment device, but as electronic technology increased, it, it was used also as an information device, giving the listeners briefs on news, traffic, weather. McLuhan sometimes calls the electronic age the age of information, a term I hear a lot nowadays, but one that was probably less widespread in the, in the 60s when he was writing. McLuhan says that commodities are increasingly information, not matter. He also says that our selves are increasingly translated into information too, not just commodities, which is leading towards this extension of consciousness itself. The Second World War led to electronic advancements too, like radar and early computing. We're gonna talk about photographs and movies and television in a later episode. But let's talk about something that everyone's talking about today, automation. McLuhan was talking about automation way back in 1964, but he wasn't alone. McClune thinks that automation will shift us from jobs back to roles. He thinks that it will break down boundaries, like between work and leisure, teacher and student, culture and technology. His reason for predicting such wide-ranging effects of automation, not just the economic effects that most are concerned with in contemporary discussions is because he sees automation not as a continuation of what gave us the mechanical industrial age, but rather the replacement of the mechanical world by electricity. In the pre-electric mechanical age, the power of the machine and the work done by the machine are always closely linked, both in space and by the fact that the power was pretty specific to the machine. The screwdriver is powered by the hand, the carriage is powered by the horse, The train's engine is powered by steam. But electricity generalizes this, providing the same source of energy to a multiplicity of machines and tasks. He also likens electric energy to information itself, for a reason that I can't really figure out. (laughs) So that was a very brief sketch of the history of electronic technologies up until the 60s, and some of McLuhan's thoughts on them. As I mentioned, I'll cover photographs, film, and TV in a later episode. And also, keep in mind that McLuhan has many more thoughts about specific technologies of the electronic age, but, you know, I don't want to go too deep into that. <laughs> Honestly, I, I, want to, I want to get this series over with sooner than later, so I can talk about other things. <laughs> McLuhan calls the electronic age instantaneous and organic, and says that this instantaneousness, by which he means speed of light communication, is overtaking the effects of print, like sequence and division. If everything happens all at once, how can you divide things up? Uh, let's end this episode with one of McLuhan's interesting predictions of the electronic age. First off, remember how any technology is an extension? Sometimes McLuhan says that it's an extension of our senses. Sometimes he says it's an extension of our bodies or and minds. These probes are contradictory, maybe, or maybe I don't understand them, but When saying that all technologies, all human artifacts, are extensions of our senses, he follows with something interesting. McLuhan's summary of consciousness is that it's the constant translation of our senses within our mind. But when a sense is extended, it becomes a closed system. Once a sense is extended, it loses that ability to translate, to interplay. But with the speed of electronic technology, things are becoming more instantaneous and hardware increasingly becomes software. Like coins to cards, our extended senses are bec- beginning to translate and interplay, similar to our internal senses. Technology is grasping towards consciousness. But McLuhan thinks that the electronic technology is the extension of our central nervous system, not thought or language, and therefore the consciousness of electronic technology doesn't require words, doesn't require language. All right, I'm gonna end it there. Um, I hope you enjoyed this very um, quick look at the history of electricity and electronic technologies. Um, next episode, we're going to talk about something that has been kind of lurking in the back of all these episodes on McLuhan. Um, it's something very important to his thought and to electronic technology, but you know, to his thought in general. It's his thoughts on causality. Um, and if that sounds boring, I, I promise you it's not, or at least it isn't to me. See you next time.